from Acts 1, verses 6 through 10. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set out by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we believe in you, and we believe in your promises for us. The promise of a future perfectly united with you in heaven for all time. Surrounded by the radiant, warming beams of your glory. God, we believe in the truthfulness of your message. The never fading, always faithful testimony of your royal son living, dying, and rising again to your right hand. Father, we long for this day. We long for his return. So with great fervor, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring your power, your rule, and your glory upon the earth. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. The only difference between the apostles after Pentecost and before Pentecost is the Holy Spirit, is the indwelling, restoring, transforming power of the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. Now, before Pentecost, the only thing that they could accomplish is a Bible study in a business meeting. Don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with a Bible study. You should all be in one. Nothing wrong with a prayer group. You should all be in one. Nothing wrong with a business meeting. Good business meetings are a joy to your leaders, right? So all of those things are good. But after the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them and fills them and endues them with power, enables them to do their mission, they are filled with the Spirit, transformed by the Spirit, and now they're ready to go. They're ready to do what God has called them to do. We're going to talk about that next week. This week, we're going to look more closely at our mission and the ascension and his return. Because those three things really set up the coming of the Holy Spirit. We really can't understand that unless we finish out chapter one, unless we understand what it is that the Lord was doing here in this chapter one. So let's talk first about our mission, because last week we talked about his mandate to wait. Wait for the means to do your mission. Wait for the Holy Spirit, who is the means by which you will be able to accomplish this mission. But now let's talk about the mission. What is it? Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's a few things. They're self-evident. I just want to pull them out of this text really quickly. That is the scope of this mission is what? It's local and it's global. It's here and it's there. It's near and it's far, right? So it's Jerusalem, the city, and then Judea, town, and then Samaria, the adjacent neighborhood, and then the rest of the world. And so right now, Jesus is telling them that your mission is local and it's global. And it's the same is true for us. The same is true for us. Why does he tell them this? Because it's a matter of wisdom. 
It's a wisdom issue. You and I, it is prudent for you and I to reach the people in our culture where God has planted us that we are best suited to reach. And Idaho Fallsian, you are best suited to reach fellow Idaho Fallsians. Is that what we're called, by the way? Because I think we should totally adopt that. That should catch on and everyone should be saying that in our <laughs> community, right? No, they should not. Um, but you and I are best situated to reach the people right here in our culture, right here in our Jerusalem. You and I are, you are, you and I are best equipped to do that. But then God expects us concentrically to move out from there into ever increasing spheres of influence for the gospel. And this is, first of all, what he has called them to do. Now, it's wise, it's prudent, but it's also, it's not just geographical, it's theological. They are to do this because, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God, first for the Jew, then, for the, then to the Gentile, right? So it's the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. So God wants to offer his people the good news of salvation in the Messiah first. And then he offers it to the rest of the world. So the scope, this mission is local, it's global, it's here. And it's out there. It's near. And it's far away. And the means of accomplishing this mission is spirit empowerment. And the message is apostolic. You and I have an apostolic message. There's two things I want to say about that. First of all, the apostolic message, the apostolic witness is discontinuous. Discontinuous. What do we mean when we say the apostolic witness is discontinuous? That means that there are only 12 men who lived in the first century, the first half of the first century, who saw Jesus be baptized by John this is the criteria that we find out as Matthias replaces Judas later in the chapter. There are only 12 men in the history of humanity who are qualified to be called the 12 because they lived in the first half of the first century. They saw the life, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord. That's the criteria. The bar is too high for you and I. No one today can call, themselves, call themselves an apostle in this sense. It just is Ill, an illegitimate claim. So their witness on, on the one hand is it's discontinuous in that sense. But it's also continuous. It's continuous in the sense that our witness to the gospel is theirs. If you have any other testimony of the gospels, of the gospel of Jesus, other than the one that they have delivered once to the saints, you have a false gospel. You do not have an apostolic witness because there are only 12 men in the first century that he called to establish this word of salvation. And we have it. It's right here. And if you don't have this message or you've changed the message that's in that book, you don't have an apostolic witness. I don't care what you call it. Okay, we good. Right. So you and I are called to this mission. It's local and it's global. It's, it's here and it's far. And our testimony is the same testimony that was given to the apostles, the original ones. And that is that Jesus Christ has lived, suffered, and died for our sins. And that he has risen from the dead for our salvation. Number two, the ascension. So let's talk about that right after this. It gives them their mission. 
And then he does this amazing thing. He ascends to heaven. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about the ascension of Christ? Something very particular. Uh, If you look in the Old Testament, according to Psalm 24, we'll read that in a second. But Psalm 24, Psalm 47, Psalm 68, Psalm 110, Psalm uh, 118. There's a lot of Psalms, actually. There are actually some Psalms that are called the Ascension Psalms. I think those are in 120 to 138 or something like that. But there are a lot of Psalms in the Old Testament which talk about the Messiah or the king ascending to his throne. Okay, so that has to do with ascending to a throne. It's not just Jesus is the first astronaut (laughs) in history, right? It's not like he's not like a spaceman. He gets beamed up to the Starship Enterprise. It's not that. We're not just talking about spatial relocation. He was here. Now he's up there. We're talking about his ascension to a throne uh, or his acceding to the throne of heaven. And so it says in verse nine, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud hid them from their sight. So we're going to talk about what the cloud is. We're going to talk about what we mean about the cloud that hid him from their sight. So what is the purpose of this ascension event? Well, Jesus ascends to take his place, his rightful place, as the exalted Lord of the world. Uh, Exalting Christ together is our motto. But it's not just our motto. Like, that's a a great slogan. It's super catchy, right? I mean, it, it sounds a little old school, but honestly, this is our motto because it's true. Christ has been exalted to the throne, the right hand of power in heaven. And so Jesus' ascension is about him taking his rightful place as the exalted Lord of the world. And this is a positional enthronement in order to receive all glory, all power as the sovereign ruler of the universe. Now notice who can ascend. There's some people who can, and there's some who can't. Here's what Psalm 24 says, verse 3 and 7 and 10. It says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who? Who may stand in his holy place? Lift up your heads, O you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is the king of glory? Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, you ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. So the psalm, the poem, the song, the hymn, is asking you as the singer who is worthy to ascend to the mount of the Lord? Who is worthy to come into the temple? Who is worthy to ascend to his throne? Only Yahweh, the Lord, the King of glory. He's the only one who is worthy to ascend this King of glory. That's the answer to the question. Now, let's see how Jesus is that King. Daniel, back in the book of Daniel, Daniel saw this vision of four successive kings leading up to the anointing, persecution, and vindication of the final king, the final Messiah. And he sees this in a vision called the Ancient of Days. I want to show it to you, verses 13 and 14. He said, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion, 
glory, and a kingdom, so that those of every people, every nation, every language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, this vision of the Son of Man acceding to the throne of God to receive all dominion, all glory, all power, all dominion, so perplexes Daniel that he just, he can't figure it out. He can't wrap his head around it. So, so he asked the angel for the interpretation. And the angel who is standing there showing him the vision says, oh yeah, okay, here's what it means. Verse 17. These huge beasts, four in number, are four successive kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones, the holy ones of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now, what's the interpretation of the vision? Who is the son of man? It's the holy ones, the holy ones. Who are the holy ones? This word is the word hagioi. The word holy ones is the word hagioi. It's translated in the Bible sometimes as saint. In the New Testament, it's almost always translated as saint. So who are the holy ones? Well, Israel thought they were. And of course, as God's people, they originally were. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he is being tried before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Sadducees and Pharisees all there gathered to try him for sedition to their country. And he will not answer any of their questions. And they're pummeling him with questions. And finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks out and says, tell me, man, are you the Christ, the son of God? And then Jesus says, you have said it. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say you have said it? Because in the original language, you can't say, are you the son of God? You have to say you are the son of God, but you have to change your intonation to make it an interrogative. You have to say you are the son of God, which the intonation now turns it into a question and a mocking question. You are the son of God. And what is Jesus's reply? It is as you say. Like Jesus ignores his intonation and just says, yes, that's correct. Technically, you have stated it correctly. I am the son of God, right? Just bam. And then he says this, and you will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with the angels at his side. He quotes Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and he makes it self-referential. He says, I'm the son of man who accedes to the throne of heaven and receives all dominion and power and glory over the earth. And Caiaphas loses his mind. Caiaphas rips the most holy part of his robe and rips it open and cries out, blasphemy. Need we hear another word? He's testified against himself. Why? Because they understood that passage to be them they are the son of man. They are the holy ones who ascend to glory and receive all dominion and power and glory over the Gentile nations. This is why, remember in verse six, they asked Jesus the question, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to who? Israel. And Jesus is trying to tell them, I'm Israel. I'm the new Israel. And all who by faith are in me are now the holy ones. By the way, this word hagioi for saint in the New Testament is the New Testament's favorite word for New Testament Christians. Favorite word. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says the church in Corinth, the saints of God. When he writes to Ephesus, he says to the church in Ephesus, the saints. 
You and I are the holy ones. Why? Because by faith, you and I are in the Son of Man. We are in God's holy one and only Son. And so Jesus interprets this passage self-referentially. So now Jesus interprets himself to be the one who ascends to the throne of heaven and receives all power and authority and glory and dominion. And who tried that before? Who tried to do that before? Satan. Satan did. The devil did. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Now, the reason why we know this is Satan is because in Luke chapter 10, Jesus quotes it. In reference to Satan, he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven, right? And here's what it says. It says shining morning star. That is the word Lucifer. So it's just translated shining morning star. How you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer. The word destroyer, the Hebrew word is the word Abaddon. Because he was a bad one. (laughs) Right? I thought that was a good joke. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the Hebrew word is abaddon. The Greek word is apollyon. That word means destroyer. Now in Revelation chapter 9, it calls the devil abaddon, whose name is also in Greek apollyon. Right? So this is the devil. This is Satan. And here's what it says. He says, the shining morning star, Lucifer, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer, abaddon, apollyon of the nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly, and in the remotest part of the north, I will ascend above the the highest clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. What is he saying he's going to do? He's saying he's going to ascend to the ancient of days and receive all glory, power, and dominion. And God says, no, actually, you won't. Bye-bye. Like it just flicks him out of heaven forever, eternally. So here we see a failed coup, a failed insurrection in heaven, a person who led an army, an insurrection against our God to say, I'm going to take the throne. And what is the language that it uses to describe that? Ascending above the highest clouds. So when Jesus is taken up into heaven in his ascension, it is not just about his location or relocation from earth to heaven. It is about his acceding to a throne and God accepts his sacrifice. And now he is king. But the angel doesn't just mention his ascension to his exalted position as Lord, cosmic Lord. No, he mentions his return, his return. Now let's talk about Jesus's return. I'm not going to answer every question that you have today. And I know some of you wonder what I think about that. I'm going to tell you some of it today, just, just as it relates to this acts 110, while he was going literally while, while Jesus is lifting off, right. Acceding to his heavenly throne. They, the disciples were gazing into heaven. Why were they doing this? In amazement, in awe. I mean, the disciples, you would agree have seen some pretty amazing things. (laughs) Like they have seen Jesus walk on water like it was made of glass. They have seen Jesus call people just with a word out of a tomb, out of a grave. They have seen Jesus do mind-boggling things, unimaginable things for any other human being. And now they've seen him die on a cross, deader than dead, risen bodily from the dead, 
Okay? And now they're watching him ascend to heaven. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, the disciples were probably pretty hard to impress. (laughs) Right? They'd seen a lot. And what are they doing here? Jesus' last act with them? Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, if you need two angels to appear to jar you out of it, you are transfixed in in a state of astonishment, amazement. This is shocking. This is amazing. And it says, and suddenly two men in white. By the way, whenever you see in the New Testament, two men in white clothes, that's always a reference to angels. Stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand heaven gazing? Why do you stand here looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, the same one you ate with, the same one you traveled with, the same one who died on a cross and you saw him resurrected, right? Who has been taken from you into heaven will also come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. So what is the angel teaching them? That this same Jesus who who you have seen ascend to the mount of God, ascend into the clouds to receive his heavenly throne is going to bring that dominion and that authority back someday. And this is what the second coming is about. So why is Jesus leaving in a cloud? What's the cloud thing about? Well, Yahweh is often depicted as coming on the clouds with great glory. Psalm 97 and 104 and Isaiah 19 and Daniel chapter 7. So Yahweh is depicted as coming on the clouds with great glory. Now, what the psalmist says, God says through the psalmist, Pharaoh, you ride a chariot, but my chariot is the clouds, <laughs> right? Like that is God's way of saying, that's a symbol. That's God's way of symbolically saying, no one is higher than me. And whenever God says he's coming, riding on the clouds, he's coming to save the faithful and judge the wicked. Make a note of that. He's always riding on the clouds to save his elect or to save his people, but he's doing it also at the same time judging those who have rejected him and rejected his gospel. Okay? We also know that Yahweh's throne is portrayed as above the clouds. So we have a bunch of passages there. If you don't get them all today, you can download this from our media page on Tuesday. But Yahweh's throne is portrayed as being above the clouds. Why is this? Because there's nothing from a first century Jew or an ancient Jewish perspective, there's nothing higher than the clouds. Like for you, what's beyond that? And so this is a way of communicating. There is no throne on earth that is higher than the Messiah's. No throne that is higher than God's. And so how do the New Testament authors use this language? Well, Jesus started with it. On the Mount of Olives, he's standing there with the disciples overlooking beautiful Jerusalem and the temple. And you can see it. It's lit up probably at dusk or at night or something like that. And here's what he tells his disciples. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So his coming is going to be what? Glorious and visible to all. Glorious and visible to all. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is a classic analogy of war. Because this is what happens when you go to war. After the war, bodies are on the ground. 
and the corpses are on the ground and the vultures are gathering to eat their eyes out and stuff like that. And it says immediately after the tribulation, after a period of incommensurable, unequaled distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, if you want to look at passages in the Old Testament, like Joel 2 and Joel 3 and Isaiah 13, this language is always describing Yahweh coming on the clouds and the language of cosmic upheaval is communicating to the people, I'm going to judge you now. I'm coming in judgment. This is what that language means. It's judgment language. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is the sign. What you'll see is in heaven, the Son of Man who is the sign. And then there are all the tribes, all the nations of the earth will mourn. Why are they mourning? Because the time of their judgment has come. And they will see the Son of Man coming, riding on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So this is when we're all going to be gathered to Christ at the end. And so this passage is about the same son who has ascended and acceded to the throne of heaven, who's received all power and all glory and all dominion is now coming back with all power and all glory and all dominion. And he is going to save the faithful who are in Christ. And he is going to judge those who are not in Christ forever. Look with me over in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 7 says, look, he is coming in the clouds. And every eye will see him and those who, even those who pierced him and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn for him or mourn over him. Why? Because the time of their judgment has come. Why will the nations be mourning? Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. He says, then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Caesar always rode on a white horse. In the first century, if you saw Caesar riding through down the middle of Rome, he was on a white, powerful steed because that communicated, that was a symbol that communicated his absolute supremacy. And now this is what John sees, a symbol of Christ, absolute supremacy. Its rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. So what is his judgment? What is his verdict? Those who are saved, those who by faith are in Christ, stand justified in his court. That's the verdict, which means that you have been found in the right because you put your faith in Jesus. And those, those who are unjustified, who do not have faith in Christ, they will be declared not in the right. And Christ is going to make war with the nations. It says his eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. And he had a name written that no one knows except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. Back in verse 8, he says, the people who are with him, who are wearing pure white linen, those are the saints. That's the bride of Christ. The armies of heaven. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. And he will rule them with an iron rod. And he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. What's the name? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That was Caesar's title. 
That was his title. No one went by that title. And now John is seeing Christ with that sash on his leg saying, this is the, key, the true king of kings and the Lord of lords, which means Caesar, your kingdom is a sham. And the true king has come. And when he returns, this is what he's going to do. He's going to save the faithful who are in Christ by faith. And he's going to judge the unfaithful who have rejected Christ forever. And it's on. I don't know where people got this idea that in the Old Testament, there's this God of vengeance and wrath. And in the New Testament, is just this mushy, soft, big softy in heaven, who's just God of love, has a heart for you and grace and peace and flowers. Like, where did people get this idea? Listen, in the Old Testament, God is a God of loving kindness and grace and wrath. And in the New Testament, God, that same God, is a God of loving kindness and grace and wrath. It's the same God. You and I right now are in a dispensation. You and I right now are in a time period in which God is making an overture. God is reaching out to the sinner and he's calling us home and he's imploring us to come by faith to Jesus before it's too late. Before it's too late. And the angel has to remind the disciples, as you saw him go in a cloud of glory, taken up to his heavenly throne, that's how he's coming back. In summary, the ascension of Jesus is about his positional exaltation to receive all glory and power and dominion over the earth. And then his return will be to bring that authority and dominion to the earth to save the righteous in Christ and to judge the unrighteous and the sinner. That's what he's doing. That's why it's important to understand his ascension and his return. So for you and I, what's the application today? Well, one, we must take personal responsibility to engage in our local and global mission. We must take personal responsibility to engage in our local and global mission. We must embrace the idea of every member is a minister now, that doesn't mean the checks are in the mail, right? Like, that doesn't mean we're going to pay you to be a minister. It just means that we have to have the mindset that every person in this room right here, this is our evangelism strategy. This is our evangelism plan. This is God's plan. Plan A is you. <laughs> plan A is me. Sharing the gospel locally and globally, right? And listen, I'm going to have to bring up something that's a little uncomfortable right now. It's a little uncomfortable. So buckle up. Just, you know, hang in there with me, if you would, for the next few moments. God has called us to this mission as a church. This is our mission to reach our community and reach the community of the world. But you and I, listen, we have no hope whatsoever of fulfilling this mission. None. If we are busy demonizing the very people we're commissioned to evangelize. <laughs> if... If you think an atheist is a godless person because they don't believe in God and you work with them, it's not going to do us any good whatsoever to demonize them for their belief system when we're trying to evangelize them. You can't evangelize anyone you demonize. It's just, it's kind of an axiom. <laughs> like it's just a rule. It's a thing. And, that, and the same is true when it comes to people of other faiths. People of other religions, it doesn't mean that they don't have kooky beliefs. They do. But just because they have kooky beliefs doesn't mean we make fun of them. 
Just because they have kooky beliefs does not mean that we post memes on Facebook about them. You and I cannot evangelize people that we're busy demonizing. We have to love them. We have to invite them into our homes. We have to show them the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, that's true politically as well. You may hold very strong political beliefs, but I got news for you. You listen to me. Your political beliefs are not the gospel. And if your political beliefs have become so important to you that you're willing to demonize a person who doesn't believe the way you believe, you do not know what spirit you are of. Because that's not the spirit of the gospel. That's not what God has called us to do and to be. And let me tell you, the second one is this. We have no hope. We have no chance whatsoever of fulfilling this God-given mission if we divide over things that are debatable, non-essential, and not the gospel. Listen, if you're going to break fellowship with me over everything that we disagree about, you're not going to have any friends. I mean, eventually, you're not going to have anybody who wants to be around you. You and I cannot break fellowship just because we have strong opinions on political matters that don't line up. You and I cannot break fellowship because we have differences of opinion over non-essential, non-gospel issues. If we do that, we, listen, we are playing into the hands of the devil. It is his strategy to get us to divide over things that are not core to our mission. And it's sinful and it's wrong. And if you're doing that, stop it. Knock it off. My official pastoral counsel to you is stop it. (laughs) Number two, we must take the posture of surrender under the sovereign rule of the ascended and exalted Christ. Well, if it is true that Christ has been exalted and when we come together, we exalt Christ together. Then, then what does Jesus say when he's exalted? He says, when I am lifted up, I will do what? Draw all men to myself. And what is he doing when he's drawing all men to himself? He's drawing us closer together. This is the secret to our unity. It's in Christ, not apart from Christ. And so if Jesus really is the exalted and someday returning Lord of the cosmic, cosmos, the cosmic Lord of the world, right? If he is, then I should come to this book with a different mentality. Not as some self-help book. Not as like a book of Proverbs or a book of personal promises. No, I come to this book knowing that this is Jesus' word to me and I live under it. This is Christ's word to me and I am obligated to it. Because he is the sovereign Lord and this is his word. This is the Lord's decree to me. So I seek to conform my life to this word and not ignore what this book teaches. Thirdly, we must take a hopeful outlook on our future. Caveat, you're entitled to be a human being. You're entitled to have a bad day. You're entitled as a human being, maybe to have a bad season. I just came out of a couple and that's all right. What I'm not entitled to is to have bad character. I'm not entitled to foster poor character. And so all of us have a bad day. All of us get snippy. All of us interpret things wrong. All of us have conflict on occasion. Everybody has a bad day. 
But generally speaking, and some of us have depressed days, right? Sometimes you're just down because you look at the world, right? But generally speaking, there should be no more hopeful community on the planet Earth than this church. Man, people should look at us and go, what is going on there? Like, why are those people showing up on Sunday and they leave so encouraged? Why do they go into their week and just take that encouragement in the Lord with them? Because they're the people of God and we have a hope that others don't have. Folks, we should be the most hopeful community on the planet. The most hopeful outlook for our future. And number four, we must take an urgent mindset. We must take an urgent mindset. Well, if it is true that men are lost in sin, if it is true that the ascended Lord of the cosmos is coming back to judge the living and the dead, and that his judgment on those who are unrepentant sinners who have not turned to him in faith, if it is true that they're going to be lost in hell forever, buddy, we better get to work. Time to get up and get to work. We need to have a sense of urgency in our souls about reaching local and global. Amen? William White said this, if we think lightly of the disease, we will loiter on the way to the physician. You and I cannot have a light estimation of what the problem is. The problem is that people are sinners and they're lost and they will be lost for eternity. If you and I don't tell them the truth and bring them into the faith. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for sending your one and only son who lived a sinless life, died in our place for our sins and rose again victorious over sin, death, and hell. And God, we come to you this morning, and we're just thankful that you sent your son. He has ascended at the right hand of the power of God, making intercession for the saints. And right now, he's available. (laughs) Right now, you can turn by faith to him. Will you do it? If you have not put your faith in this risen, exalted, and soon coming king, if you haven't done it, will you stop? I implore you, will you stop messing around? Stop messing around. Right now's the time. Come to Christ. I implore you, I beg you, put your faith in the master. Embrace him as your savior and the risen Lord. Embrace him. And don't put it off one more day. Don't put it off one more hour. Don't put it off... Before you leave that door, you need to know Jesus. Do you know him? Embrace him now. And it's very simple. You confess the truth. God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a wretch. The fact of the matter is I've messed up my life. And my philosophy has gotten me right where I am right now. And I confess my sins to you. And I receive Jesus' substitutionary work dying on a cross for my sins. And I know that he rose bodily from the dead. If you do that, you make that good confession right now. You are a child of God. Will you do it before you leave today? In Jesus' name, amen.